The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour. President Trump leaves the deadline open for fresh tariffs on China as he warns the relationship with Beijing has become challenging. I think that we'll end up making a deal with China. We have a very good relationship, although it's a little bit testy right now, as you would expect. Uh, I think they really have to make a deal. A calmer day in Hong Kong after mass protests against a controversial extradition bill turned violent, forcing the closure of government offices and leaving more than 70 people injured. Uh, the Hang Seng leads most of Asian indices lower after major U.S. markets log back-to-back -back losses whilst the oil price hovers near a five-month low. And the favourite to succeed Theresa May as leader of the British Conservative Party and hence become Prime Minister Boris Johnson vows to take the UK out of the EU with or without a Brexit deal as 10 candidates, yes, just 10, uh, face off in the first round of voting. At this hour, President Trump says he's mulling sanctions to halt construction of Russia's Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline. Eurozone finance ministers are also meeting in Luxembourg today as Italy aims to avoid disciplinary action over its rising debt levels. Meantime, Uber unveils its latest self-driving Volvo cars. The ride-sharing app continues its push towards autonomous vehicles. I want to talk to you all about a bit of a problem and it's about potency, it's about flaccidity, uh, it's about the Viagra situation which I think the market's beginning to flag a bit on as well because I read a great article in the Guardian, the UK Guardian, about a week ago talking about the race to replace Viagra. Pfizer, as you know, has had this drug since 1998 and it has provided real potency uh, for the share price, potency to their revenues and their broader earnings as well. But the problem is bringing it back to the market markets. Where's the potency coming from now as well? Uh, and again, reading uh, abroad and looking at all kinds of different issues as well, there seems to me to be a lack of potency, a lack of market Viagra, which is taking us uh, to levels where the market just feels a bit limp at the moment. Let's be honest about it. I mean, look at the various factors for these markets that could drive us up. Earnings, and we've got a great chart we'll show you a little bit later on the show, showing the earnings and revenue growth in the United States for the broader S&P. Well, it's looking a little bit limp as well. What about flows into the market? Well, again, we'll talk to you a little bit later on about ETFs and how May apparently saw the first outflows of ETFs, you know, the passive investors, uh, for about five years as well. So is there a tide turning there as well? So no potency coming from retail investors, no potency coming from earnings. What about data? Well, the CPI yesterday, again, really limp, underwhelming uh, for the central banks, underwhelming for everybody who are looking for... Uh, 
a bit of a, a boost to inflation, which showed actually there is a bit of tension as well. Let's take a look at the dollar cross as well, because I'll show you more questions about potency. And this was raised in the Financial Times today. Look at the euro dollar trading around 113. Drag, you would have hoped, according to the FT article I was looking for, for a little bit more bang for his buck, so to speak, from the, the verbal Viagra that was given, i.e., would he try and get the euro down and try and stimulate the European export story? It didn't work. Nothing's really moved. The market is questioning uh, the potency of, of Mr. Draghi. And my final point, the fifth of five, looking for the, uh, the, the next stage, is on the oil price as well. Again, what's going on with the oil price? It was only a month or so ago that we were trading, where were we? 75 bucks on Brent. We were over $60 on WTI. And now people are questioning, has OPEC still got the power? To be fair, they've been questioning that for a long time. But a shout out to my old friend David Shepard at the FT, who once again is making that very clear point. Is shale and the lack of demand, plus add in a sprinkle of speculators as well, dampening any effect that uh, OPEC and OPEC Plus is having on the market as well. Let's have a quick look at the Asian markets as well. Uh, they are currently trading down eight tenths of one percent for the Hang Seng. A lot of political pressures will come to that in a few moments time. And the opening calls for European indices look like that. Now to a man who's never had a problem with potency and his power of his word, let alone anything else. It's Jeff Cutmore. So the problem here is that you have to set the right mood. If you want to perform and you are going to step up and you're going to perform on demand, when it comes to markets, you've got to set the right mood. And the reality is yesterday we were in the red to the close. And it, there was just a reminder, I think, for markets that the world's two largest economies are not doing the dance. At the moment, they are sat on either sides of the room glaring at each other and there is no prospect of a coming together of minds at this stage. And President Trump, I think, made that fairly clear in his commentary when he talked about the, quote, testy relationship that he sees at the moment. So that is bad. And the Fed, of course, is there to set the mood music. And at the moment, the mood music is not cheering potential investors. Can we just keep on treading water for a little bit longer, though? And if you look at the, the dialogue yesterday, I mean, President Trump effectively took a deadline off the table. There's no deadline for any ratcheting up in those uh, trade tariffs with China. And the market thought there might be a deadline if we got to G20 and there was no deal on the sidelines. But he's taken away that threat for markets, yet he hasn't really delivered a time frame. So we're just treading water there. And if we've got a bit more Fed stimulus, whether it's just intangible in the form of words, the promise of a rate cut, will that be enough to, to keep markets uh, not far from their peaks at this point? I mean, the core inflation rate at 1.8% did set the opportunity, I think, for the Fed to actually move. Uh, through this year. But you know what? The market just seems to be divided as to whether that will take place. Anyway, let's refocus on our headline story then. President Trump has declined to set a deadline for further tariffs against China. The US leader said he still expects to meet with President Xi at the G20 later this month and maintained he thought a deal was likely in the end. The president stressed US-China ties were strong despite the current rough patch. I think that we'll end up making a deal with China. We have a very good relationship, although it's a little bit testy right now, as you would expect. Uh, I think they really have to make a deal. A lot of companies are leaving China, as you know. It's uh, in all the reports, and they're going to Vietnam and various other places, and they're also coming to the United States to make their product because they don't want to pay the tariff. And there is no tariff if you do it in the United States. 
uh, President Trump. The president also declined to give an opinion on the violent turn in the Hong Kong protests. Uh, he asked whether uh, Beijing, or rather asked whether Beijing had overplayed its hand. He focused on the size of the turnout. The massive demonstrations, I look today, and that really is a million people. A lot of times people uh, talk about uh, they had 2,000 people, but it was really 1,000 or it was 200. I see it all the time. I see it all the time. But when you look at this demonstration, they said it was a million people. That was a million people. That was as big a demonstration as I've ever seen. So I hope it all works out for China and for Hong Kong. Is it, are they sending a message to China with these demonstrations? I don't know what they're sending. I mean, that's a demonstration that they're having. Uh, I understand the reason for the demonstration, but I'm sure they'll be able to work it out. I hope they're going to be able to work it out with China. Well, let's talk more about uh, the events on the ground in Hong Kong that took place as Hong Kong government offices basically will be shut for the rest of the week and changes taking place directly on the ground as uh, protesters uh, go up against a controversial extradition bill. Those concerns linger amid tight security. More than 70 people were injured yesterday after violent clashes between demonstrators and police. Let's get out to Sherry for more from Hong Kong. Sherry, we got a sense when you were live on air with us yesterday that there might be something looming later on in the day. And indeed, those protests did turn violent with uh, police resorting to rubber bullets and tear gas. Tell us about the developments on the ground and how everybody is now waking up this morning digesting uh, some of those uh, outcomes yesterday. That's right, Karen. So uh, the really primary concern is, is the protest is still happening here in Hong Kong after a day of one of the some of the worst of violence that we've seen in the history of Hong Kong, I would say, together with, of course, uh, what we saw on Sunday was one of the biggest civil action seen by the Hong Kong people to really block this legislation. What we're seeing today after yesterday is a rather uneasy calm. We do see hundreds of uh, protesters uh, still uh, saying no to the bills, uh, still making their presence uh, surrounding the legislative camp. But uh, it's a very peaceful uh, demonstration of their voice at this point. And uh, uh, there has been a couple of minor scuffles, uh, but uh, not a lot of, um, you know, difficult situations that we saw yesterday. In the meantime, uh, you know, the, what we saw, the disruption that we saw yesterday is certainly leading to a lot of paralysis. I'm getting a lot of uh, accounts from people who are residing and working in Hong Kong saying this building, this mall, this this shop is closed, and uh, that can explain uh, what kind of uh, difficult situation that Hong Kong people are going through. In the meantime, the Hong Kong central government is shut today and tomorrow. But that doesn't mean the Legislative Council is uh, taking a break in all this. So yes, uh, it actually led to the delay in yesterday's legislative uh, debate that was uh, supposed to happen. Uh, nothing scheduled today, but uh, we're still monitoring the situation. In the meantime, does this development change the mind of the Hong Kong government? Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam says it doesn't. Take a listen. We have not done enough in engaging young people uh, from different backgrounds and different sectors. And after uh, this um, incident, we certainly will do better. The alternative of not pressing ahead with the legislation will have an even worse um, situation in terms of confidence and trust. 
So, of course, her message is that the government is not budging from this amendment, but uh, the government will do better to listen and communicate better. But that's exactly what she said on Monday as well in the wake of a Sunday's protest. In the meantime, uh, you know, just to go back to the reaction that we got overnight from Washington, uh, from many different entities. In fact, uh, you played the sound of U.S. President Donald Trump, but uh, the U.S. state government also, state department, I should say, uh, coming out with a rather stern message expressing grave concern over this and also saying the amendment will jeopardize a special status that Washington affords Hong Kong. So certainly it goes to show how the conversation now seems to be about the economic uh, uh, trade and as well as uh, diplomatic relations that Hong Kong has with the United States. You know, it has been enjoying this special status under the system, under the framework framework of one country, two systems with China. Will that change is certainly uh, really the big talking point, I think, moving forward, watching this development. Guys? Sherry, thank you very much. And for the points that you've raised, uh, sets up the conversation nicely for Henry Tillman, chairman and CEO of Greeson's Peak, who joins us now. The points that Sherry raised about the protesters and what was raised in that interview there with Carrie Lam was that uh, there's a feeling by the government they've not engaged with some young people enough. I think the extent of the protests and the concern around, among business communities and politicians tells us a different story that it's not just a, a few young people that haven't engaged with this story. The, the protests tell us that it's a much deeper issue than that. How do you feel about what's taking place in, in Hong Kong around the extradition bill? I think it's a piece of the, the entire GBA project, which has been under discussion with China probably for the past 20 years. So if you look at GBA, this is one component of it. If you look at um, the, how it's designed to increase more tech investment, how it's designed to increase flows between the insurers across those three different co uh, components. Um, if you look at how China is actually turning Hong Kong in much more of a place to raise capital over time, and indeed, to, you see from the most, most recent Alibaba statement to leave the USA and to bring it into Hong Kong, and it's part of something you've even as big as the, uh, the trade uncertainty. So you're saying China wants to capitalize on many of the benefits of Hong Kong being such a big open uh, place to do business, uh, turning it almost more Chinese. However, if you look at the response internationally, many believe if it were to turn more towards China, that it would not be the place that it has been for, for a lot of money to be parked as a safe haven. I think you're thinking about this in the short term. So I, I'm, uh, I think this is, a, this is all part of, a, of how the world is changing with respect to the BRI. So last week, if you listen to the entire Russia discussion and how the U.S. took or didn't take that change. So if you look at, again, BRI is changing the world, and this is one major component and major launch of the BRI this year. So I think it should be viewed in the context of how China-led BRI is changing the world. Uh, but BRI could be a very short-term thing as well. Good morning, Henry. Um, bearing in mind there are so many countries who are finding actually it's not working for them, signing up with these debt deals that don't work for them, uh, for sending a lot of their, their goods and resources uh, to China as well. A lot of people are questioning the process already at this early stage, aren't they? Even though we talk about longer historical uh, narratives. Let me take each of these separately. So on the debt trap you're discussing, if you go to a document written by Rhodium, who's a competitor of ours, that analyzed 50 billion of those, of those loans you're talking about sure. that have been restructured. And there's only been one write-off that was uh, basically in Sri Lanka, as you know. That's not a bad number. That's not a bad number. And if you look at our research, 
our firm published the first ever longitudinal study on Cambodia. Uh-huh. And that was rebuilt in a period of eight years. And if you show China to put up all the money up front with low returns, and the high returns later on were done actually by Korea, Japan, Singapore, Canada, etc. We've just t- done a piece on, on Oman, same story. Ethiopia, same story. So I think there's so much uncertainty with those numbers that people use our firm to clarify numbers. I just spent two hours yesterday at Cambridge discussing this very point. So, so when people like uh, Mahathir Mohamed um, talk about the fear of a China debt trap facing the emerging world, he's talking rubbish, in your I, opinion? I wouldn't say that. I think if the, the result of that was that deal was recut. Isn't that right? right. So many times deals were I've been on the board of three banks and yeah. credit committees. So sometimes you recut these things. So the emerging world has nothing to fear from China? I think that's a strong statement. I think that change... Well, I'm just interpreting what you're saying. I think that change brings uncertainty. There's already uncertainty in these markets. And back to your prior comment before I arrived, mm. I think China is now girding itself for a much longer battle with this. And I think um, the Alibaba bringing cash out of the USA into China, or back into China, is sends a message to Mr. Trump. Henry, just, just to refocus on, on what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment, there is an interpretation that by Hong Kong pushing this through and being seen to be doing Beijing's work, this will be a breach of the one country, two systems uh, legal setup that was left after 1997. That raises issues about the willingness of Chinese authorities to honour international agreements. We're in the midst of a much bigger game going on between China and the US over such issues, uh, uh, property rights and so on and so forth, intellectual property rights. Um, do you think that it's wrong for international infest- investors to infer from what's taking place in Hong Kong that this is about China and its willingness to honour international treaties? I think it's a, sh- a step to, to bring Hong- make Hong Kong much bigger, much broader and much more integrated into China over time as part of building, the, the, building out the BRI. And I think back to your point before, I don't think it's just um, the trade you're talking about. I think it's also a lot to do with uh, cloud. So when, so when people say that the, the program of the Greater Bay Area is about subsuming Hong Kong into China and removing its special status as a financial entry point into China, that's wrong. That's misconstruing Beijing's ambitions through the Greater Bay idea. Well, I don't work for the Chinese government, but the facts are there's seven million people. No, I'm just people. asking you what you there's, think. There's, I don't care se- what the Chinese government people. says. There's ch- seven million people in China, and GBA is 70 million. Mm. Yes, yeah, so it's part of, of, of a much larger area, and over time, I think it'll become much more integrated into China. Mm. Yes. Henry, thanks very much for joining us. Good to see you. Henry Tillman, Chairman and CEO of Grissons Peak. Uh, Coming up on the programme, we are live from Luxembourg, where Eurozone finance ministers are set to meet amid worries over Italy's rising debt. We'll see you after the break. Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte says he's confident that Italy can avoid disciplinary action from the EU Commission over its public debt. Conte told the ANSA news agency that Italy 
will be able to address EU concerns. He added that the country's debt will be reduced, quote, faster than even we expected. Wow, Sylvia, in Luxembourg, where Eurozone finance ministers will meet today. Faster than even we expected. I've looked at Italian debt for most of my career, which began in the late 80s. I haven't seen it go down much in that period. Good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. Well, indeed, that discussion is going to happen here today about the Italian debt when the Eurozone finance ministers gather later today. I have to say, though, that different sources told me that we should not ex expect a decision on whether to open an excessive deficit procedure today. We've mentioned this procedure quite often, and it, the markets actually seem to have been volatile to news surrounding this EDP process. And I have to say that this is actually a step-by-step -step approach. It basically monitors whether a country is reducing its high level of deficit and or high level of public debt. In this process, the Commission proposes a country, tells the country how to uh, basically implement measures that will lead to a more fiscal, uh, to a more sound fiscal uh, situation. And then if there's no action from that member state, then we could indeed reach a level of sanctions, a level on, by when the European Commission actually says we need to implement uh, fines against this country. But I have to say that when it comes to Italy, though, we're just at stage two out of 17 possible steps. So it's very early at this stage to discuss any sort of fines, any sort of sanctions against Italy. What we're expecting from the finance ministers today is really a general discussion about Italy. The Italian finance minister, Giovanni Tria, will have the chance to debrief the ministers about his plans for the Italian economy and then the earliest possible date that we could actually see the finance ministers announcing tougher scrutiny on the Italian economy is actually next month when they meet in Brussels. So for now, Steve, there are two things that we need to monitor. One, the developments in Rome, the dynamics between the two deputy prime ministers, and second, the market reaction. Let's not forget the last week, for instance, we heard from Moody's saying that actually market sentiment could be a much more effective instrument in leading to policy change in Italy rather than all of these European processes and all the European procedures that are available. But I will be discussing some of the economic concerns surrounding the Eurozone as well as the latest political developments in the European Union later this morning when I speak with the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Xavier Vatel. Excellent. Sylvia, thank you. Boris Johnson has pledged to take the UK out of the EU by October 31st with or without a deal as he launched his bid to become Conservative Party leader. The former Foreign Secretary warned fellow party members that a further delay to Brexit would mean, quote, defeat. Ahead of today's first round of voting in the leadership contest, Johnson played down concerns of a, quote, no-deal scenario. The favourite to succeed, Theresa May, said it is time for the country to come together. Now is the time to unite this country and unite this society. And we cannot begin that task until we have delivered on the primary request of the people the big thing that they asked us to do. After three years and two missed deadlines, we must leave the EU on October the 31st. And we must do better than the current withdrawal agreement that has been rejected three times by Parliament. And let me clear that I am not aiming for a no-deal outcome. I don't think that we will end up with any such thing. I'm going to anyway. 
just looking at uh, one of the reports about some of the polling and, uh, you know, whether it's accurate at this point, given a uh, grain of salt that we attribute to most polls these days, that you could see a 140-seat majority if there were an election uh, led with oh, Boris who? Johnson taking the Tory majority for, for the Conservatives. And that would who, who's, that, who's that the, poll by? Exactly. I'm trying to just dig around to find out about this poll, but it's something that's been peddled in the Sun newspaper. Well, far, far bit for me to, to be disparaging, and I won't be disparaging, but that is utter gibberish. But I know, but you go from what? A, a government that, that barely can pass anything at this point without having negotiations with every party around the country trying to get anything through to somebody who that uh, the, I think the voter would say... the same one that gave the Tories a 90-seat majority in the last election? Someone incredibly divisive comes in. Is that the in, same one that saw Hillary Clinton win in the States? seat majority. Well, I, 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 I cannot... I, mean, I want a job at that polling company because that's money for nothing, <laughs> that is. Because that's money for just making up gibberish. A yes. 140-seat majority for the Tories that's in a country is. that every other single poll for the last five years has said this country is completely and utterly split it's down the middle. extraordinary, isn't it? Wow. Anyway, uh, wow. Out there. People up, get paid for that apparently stuff? Apparently so. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.